Well, what a difference a year makes. You know, last year, uh, the government prevented the corporate church from gathering together in person anyway and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. And I was talking to some folks during the fellowship time, you know, wouldn't it be great? Well, first of all, you know, yesterday, someone pointed out yesterday the date was 4-3-2-1. So wouldn't that be great if that was a countdown? And this year on Resurrection Sunday, the Lord gathered the church together to meet Him in the clouds and take us out of this uh, sin-stricken world. But uh, Maranatha, amen, come Lord Jesus. But uh, He hasn't done that yet, or at least if He did, we're all in big trouble. <laughs> but uh, I know where I'm going, so I'm pretty sure it hadn't happened yet. Um, but uh, so I'm just going to preach, if that's all right, until, until the rapture. I mean, I'm not going to preach until the rapture. I'm going to preach until the service is over or the rapture, whichever uh, comes first. And uh, by the way, if the rapture does happen uh, during my message, uh, my notes are embedded in the slide presentation. So someone, just, Jeff, you can just come right on up and you know, fin- finish out for us, if you don't mind. Well, my, uh, my list of most embarrassing moments is pretty long, uh, but at or near the top of the list has to be an experience I had about 20 years ago in the early days of my uh, academic uh, time in academics. I had been working at a college for about a year teaching Bible and theology classes, and the school offered at that time as part of my contract uh, for me to pursue my Ph.D., And since they were going to pay for it, the provost had to sign off on which school I attended. And after applying at several different ones, I eventually landed on a conservative uh, sort of historic school in northeast Pennsylvania, Baptist Bible Seminary. And I began the application and admissions process, and I was under a ton of pressure because, of course, if I didn't get accepted, it would not only mean that I let my boss down, but I'd have to start all over again looking for a Ph.D. program that would take me. So I had struggled through weeks of of application paperwork, entrance exams in Greek and Hebrew and systematic theology and Bible exposition. I passed the GRE, had one final exam left before officially being accepted and allowed to start studying. And that final exam, or that last exam in the process, was an interview with a committee. And it was done by phone, so I couldn't see the, the men on the committee. But I found out later the whole design of that last interview was for them to really just rapid fire, ask me all kinds of obscure questions and just try to see how I thought on my feet. And they also used that opportunity to critique some of the uh, materials that I had submitted in the application process, one of which was my master's thesis on the New Covenant. So we're in this interview, and again, I can't see who's there, don't know any of them. They're just voices on the phone to me. And somebody begins to ask me a question about something I had said in my paper on the New Covenant. And not only was it something I had said in the paper, but to tell you how detailed this exam was, it was something I had said in a footnote in the paper. And so they took issue with what I had said or the way I had said it or something, and I began to sort of defend myself and and, and state why I was correct. And the the issue was that they said I had misquoted somebody that I had cited in in the paper, a, a man by the name of Dr. Rodney Decker. And again, he was just somebody I'd found in a journal article and cited, but this person quizzing me on the interview really didn't appreciate the way I had characterized that statement made by this Dr. Rodney Decker. Well, after we went back and forth, eventually they said, well, we'll just move on. 
Uh, and then the man who had been questioning me said, by the way, my name is Dr. Rod Decker. <laughs> well, you never saw a guy backpedal so fast in all of his life. It was quite uh, humiliating. He went on, by the way, to be a, just a good friend, and I actually had him as a professor in that program. He's with the Lord now. He died of cancer unexpectedly just a few years ago, but uh, I'll never forget that experience. Well, about 2,000 years ago, two men were walking the little seven-mile road, most likely west of Jerusalem, to a village called Emmaus. And they were returning home after Passover, and they were having a conversation about Jesus when a stranger appeared. One of these two men was Cleopas, Jesus' uncle, Joseph's brother. And it had been three days since the horrible events of Bad Friday, when Jesus had been brutally beaten, crucified, and laid in a borrowed tomb. And as they were talking, the stranger approaches them, and the conversation about Jesus expanded to the three of them now. And it gets really fascinating really quickly when we find out from Luke's account that the stranger was in fact none other than Jesus himself, resurrected just hours earlier. These men had been talking about Jesus as if he was not in the room, the same way I had been talking about Rod Decker, as if he was not on the phone. So what I want you to be thinking about as we work our way through this passage this morning is several applications, which I'll make as we go through it. But to begin with, I just want to get your mind thinking, would you know Jesus if he came up and tapped you on the shoulder? What does Jesus have to do to get your attention? So as we turn to Luke chapter 24, I want to kind of start big and then zero in on our immediate context. We know that Luke is one of three gospels we call the synoptics, and each synoptic gospel writer comes at the life and ministry of Christ from a little bit different angle. For example, Matthew talks about Jesus as the king. Mark talks about Jesus as the suffering servant. And for Luke, he is writing to a predominantly Greek audience about Jesus as the ideal man. Son of Man is the title most characteristic within Luke's gospel. The gospel of Luke, of course, is a two, one, part one of a two-part work. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and he also wrote Acts. And together, Luke and Acts comprise more of the New Testament than any other writer. So Luke was the most proficient author of the New Testament, 27% of the Greek New Testament. Luke was not an eyewitness of Christ, but he traveled with Paul on his journeys, and of course, Paul was an eyewitness of Christ. So this was written, the Gospel of Luke was written in the late 50s, some 35 years or so after the beginning of the church and after the events that it talks about uh, there in this passage. The key verse is Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When you get to the immediate context of uh, chapter 24, uh, let's kind of, again, put it in context. The first eight chapters of Luke cover the first two and a half years of Christ's life. And then what's unique about Luke's gospel is the next 20, um, excuse me, the next 10 or 11 chapters deal with just that final journey to Jerusalem, the final year of Christ's life. Very detailed. And then in chapters 20 to 24, we get to the final week, that week of Christ's life leading up to the cross. So this encounter with the stranger on the road to Emmaus took place on Sunday, 
just three days after the crucifixion had happened on Friday. And it had been just a couple of hours since Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, who was the wife of Herod Antipas's manager, and Mary, the mother of James, and some other women had been to the tomb and found it empty. It had been just a short time since Peter, upon hearing that news, had run to the tomb, stooped down, and found the empty grave clothes. Word was beginning to spread that something was going on. Now, they didn't have texting and tweets and technology, but you, can, you better believe, given the significance of this moment and that all eyes had been on that tomb, given the references Jesus had made during his ministry, uh, were all, were, were, people were paying attention. And word began uh, to spread. But no one really knew for sure what was going on. It was, there was some confusion. In fact, Luke uh, tells us their words seemed like nonsense, and they didn't really believe them. So as we move into this little encounter between these two men and the stranger on the road to Emmaus, I want to just point out six things as we kind of make some applications here. First of all, I want you to notice the inquisitive disciples. And we're just going to go verse by verse. It's such a fascinating story. The inquisitive disciples. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. Two disciples, that is, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So these apostles, these disciples were going somewhere, but they really didn't have much good news. It was Sunday, the day of the resurrection, the day of the Easter event, as we now call it and celebrate it. We don't know exactly where Emmaus was, but Luke tells us it was seven miles away. And so it was that while they conversed and reasoned. Now that word talked, if we go back to verse 14, you see the word talked there in yellow, and then the word conversed in verse 15. That's the same word in Greek, and it's actually only used four times in the entire New Testament, twice right here. And it, it's the word homileo. It's where we get the word homily in English or homiletics. It literally means to keep company with and join in conversation. To keep company with and join in conversation. Many other words that Luke could have used to describe this conversation that took place, but he chose that word because from the earliest days, Christianity, even from hours after the resurrection, before most people even knew what had happened, Christianity has spawned a healthy, sincere, meaningful conversation. We're part of a select club, even 2,000 years later. We're part of a group of human beings where we have a common interest that compels us into dialogue and discussion. It reminds me of the story of Paul. You remember this story in Acts chapter 20? Uh, the story of Eutychus. It's kind of a humorous story. Paul is ministering in Troas around 57 AD, and it's the third time this word is used in the New Testament, the word talked. It says when he had come up, if you remember, Paul had been preaching this long sermon, and the guy Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the window, and falls down to the ground and dies. So you can all be thankful we're on a single story here when I'm <laughs> preaching. But anyway, so Paul goes down, lays on him, raises him from the dead, and then he comes back up, and this is where we pick up the story when he, Paul, had come up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked a long while. Apparently he didn't learn his lesson. He continued uh, to talk a long while. And this is that same word, homileo, just to dialogue, to share a moment that, uh, when you have something in common. You know, for many years I've been on the road, and often when we travel to speak somewhere, I'll stay in homes. And um, 
the host families, when you stay with them, they love to keep you up late at night talking, especially DBC, by the way. That's, the, that's known for that in Duluth, uh, Minnesota. And, uh, and, and I, I, those are some special times. They're physically exhausting, but they're special times because you're meeting people that you've never met before, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have something in common. And so we may have never, we, we may not have any of the same interests, but because of the Lord, it seems like we have everything in common. It's a running, running theme throughout our life. When's the last time you had a long talk with someone about the Lord? Back to the story. Uh, so it was that while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So they're talking. You know, it's a puzzling time. They're not sure what to make of what's going on. Jesus appears to him. But their eyes were restrained, and they didn't know him. They had no idea this was Jesus. And so that leads us to the next phase. You know, this, this really reads like a Hollywood script. This could be a screenplay. I mean, it's an amazing story. And we're now sort of moving into scene two, the incognito visitor. And uh, Jesus said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? You know, at the end of verse 17, you, you probably don't see it in the English Bible, but there's an actual textual variant. A textual variant just means that, you know, the Bible was written originally in Greek, the New Testament. And we have thousands of manuscripts, copies, and fragments available from the 2nd, 3rd century forward. But sometimes as scribes would copy them because they didn't have Xerox machines and digital copies and PDF, they would, they would make mistakes in the copies of the original. You know, Luke wrote when he was carried along by the Holy Spirit and the quill hit the sheepskin, and that's the original uh, the document, the autograph, we call it. But the scribal copies often had mistakes. But there's one scribal copy in which there's an addition at the end of verse 17 here that said that these two disciples were so shocked by Jesus' question that they stopped walking dead in their tracks and looked at each other with sadness and dif disbelief. When Jesus asked that question, remember, they didn't know who he was, it opened a wound. How could this stranger not know what's going on. And then we get into this extended uh, dialogue. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? Well, he, he knew, of course. Um, this is where we get the notion of a stranger on the road to Emmaus. That's who he was uh, to them. And, um, you know, they, they, they didn't have a clue. I wonder how often we're, you know, scared or nervous or some other way fretting or worrisome or anxious when Jesus is right there in our midst and we had no idea or we forget. I mean, what a great reminder this historical encounter gives us. Jesus is always with us. Remember what he said on the Great Commission, which would have come after this. Remember, he appeared for some 40 days to thousands of people. And then just before the ascension, sometime in there, we don't know the exact date, he gave the Great Commission. So he hadn't said this yet, but it bears repeating. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, this has been God's promise all along to his people. Generation after generation, God promises to be with us. He told the children of Israel as they stood on the banks of the Jordan, The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
700 years before Christ, he told the Jewish people, I am with you. And here he was with these two men, and they had no idea. Then we move into sort of Act 3, and we see the inconceivable misunderstanding. You know, this would be, if it weren't so profound and powerful and spiritually invigorating, it would be humorous. It would be almost like an you know, a typical plot of an I Love Lucy or Dick Van Dyke episode where there's a miscommunication and, and they don't find out to the end of the episode, but the audience knows. Well, we know what's going on, but they didn't in real time. The inconceivable misunderstanding. And he said to them, this is Jesus talking, what things? <laughs> he was baiting his companions, getting them to articulate what they knew and why they were sad. Now, this is one of many examples in Scripture that we call anthropomorphisms, where obviously Jesus as God knew exactly what was in their hearts and minds, but the Bible communicates to us in human terms in ways that we can sort of understand it in the realm of time, space, and matter. Obviously, Jesus knew what they were talking about. It kind of reminds me of God's dialogue with Jonah outside Nineveh, or God's dialogue with Adam and Eve in the garden. Same thing, an anthropomorphism. And so they said to him, well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So it's interesting. They, they viewed Jesus as a mighty prophet, yet they failed to fully embrace and comprehend the implications of what he himself taught, this mighty prophet. I mean, you Looking back, you think, how is this possible? But don't we do the same thing? I mean, we have all the great and precious promises right here in God's Word. And yet, I wonder how many times, you know, the Lord looks down and says, Don't you believe me? Don't you trust me? Why is your heart fainting? Why are you wondering? They, had, they, they knew He was a great prophet, but evidently, as we're going to see, they didn't believe everything that uh, was said. The conversation continues. This is these uh, the, the men talking to Him, and, and how they said, and how the chief priests... And our rulers delivered him to be contemned to death and crucified him. So notice they also laid the blame for Jesus' death squarely in the hands of the religious leaders. This is a point Luke's been making throughout his gospel. The Jewish rulers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the political leaders, did not acknowledge Jesus as the promised Messiah. You know, to this day, 2,000 years later, it's often the established religion that deceives people and stands in the way of God. How ironic, isn't it? I mean, that's certainly true in the present age with the apostate church leading so many naive Christians today to worship at the altar of government instead of the Word of God. Reminds me of a quote I heard on a podcast I listened to recently. Maybe you've heard this. I, I can't say who said it for sure, but it's very meaningful. And the quote is this, when fascism finally takes hold in our country, it will be wrapped in a flag and carrying a Bible. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But they go on, but we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he was who was going to redeem Israel. We thought this Jesus was the the great Messiah, the long-awaited promised Messiah who would throw off the shackles of Rome and usher in the long-awaited uh, kingdom. He would be, they thought, their nation's deliverer. Of course, he is the nation's deliverer, and in fact, he did redeem not just Israel, but all of mankind from the curse of sin. That was part of God's plan. 
you know, suffering had to come before reigning. The cross had to come before the crown. Um, but they were thinking in terms of the physical, physical deliverance. And they, they go on and say, today's the third day since these things happen. I just, I, I love that last phrase. It, it just makes you go, huh? I mean, they knew multiple times Jesus had mentioned on the third day. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth, and so forth and so on. And they got it, but yet they were still downtrodden and depressed. They expected something to happen by then. And the fact that nothing had happened, as far as they knew, disappointed them. Cleopas and his friend knew about the promise of the resurrection. They were anticipating it, but they still missed it. Their expectation of what a resurrected Messiah would look like and what he would do and accomplish caused them to miss the very event itself. I mean, I wonder what they thought it was going to look like. Did they think there would be a thunderous announcement, He is risen, or loud explosions, or rockets glaring? You know, we can learn something from this as it relates, from our vantage point, to the return of Christ. In fact, Jesus would, you know, said in his... In his uh, last week of his life he said you know rebuking the jewish leaders you know how to discern the look at the clouds and discern the weather but you don't know how to discern the signs of the times what are we looking for in the savior's return we can get complacent and maybe we need to take a closer look at that they continue yes and certain women of our company who have arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. I mean, it's almost like you want to stop and say to these guys, do you hear yourselves talking? <laughs> but they, they didn't believe it. In fact, they go on, certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. That's amazing. There was evidence of an empty tomb, but no evidence of Jesus. An empty tomb was just this weird puzzle that discouraged them when it should have been an answer to all of their questions. And even this angelic visit didn't change their tune and change their perspective. I mean, I wonder how many people this weekend all across the Western world are celebrating an empty tomb without knowing Jesus. I mean, what's the point? I mean, what's the point of the empty tomb if not for what it means? And it means that Jesus has risen just as he said he would. I mean, today, maybe you're here and, and, and you see the empty tomb. You know, we've sung about it. We've talked about it. We've got it on the front page of the bulletin there. How much evidence do you need? The empty tomb is really all the evidence. It's all the evidence these men needed. And it's all the evidence that we need. Next week, at long last in our study through Hebrews, we're going to get to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And I've been chomping at the bit to do this, as you know, to study this passage. It's a key passage in Hebrews. We were supposed to do it before I left on this most recent uh, uh, trip, but the weather preempted our services. So in the Lord's timing, it's going to happen uh, next week. But, you know, new life begins by looking at Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And then we live our lives day by day trusting in Him. We could not do that 
if he was still in the tomb, if his physical body had just withered away into nothing. Uh, he is the God-man. He defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the dead. So we move next into the instructive explanation. Here Jesus begins to respond. They still don't know who he is, though, so the tension is still mounting. So he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. I mean, that's what I would say. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he said it much more graciously and better, but I just want to say, you dummies, wake up, you know. You slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? In other words, isn't this precisely the way it was intended to go down? I mean, if you were the Lord and you said, I'm going to be delivered up, crucified, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but three days later I'm going to rise from the dead, and then it happened, what would that look like? Well, it would look like precisely what it looked like, empty tomb and all. But they, it's interesting that he talks about how the prophets of old have talked about him because this notion of a, the, the, the blood of Christ redeeming mankind goes all the way back, as we've talked about, to Genesis. You know, Mankind in the garden fell when we sinned against a holy God, and immediately God begins to paint a picture of his gracious and merciful redemption. You see it pictured in the skins of the animals that were used to cover Adam and Eve in the garden. There was no death before that. Then you see it in the reference in Genesis 3.15 to how ultimately the seed of the woman, a reference to the virgin birth of Christ, is going to destroy the devil. You see it even before that. You see it, or I mean right after that, you see it with Cain and Abel. When, you know, Cain's uh, uh, sacrifice was rejected because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. And Hebrews tells, about, tells us about that. We talked about that not long ago. Um, so Jesus here tells us, in no uncertain terms, that the, the whole testimony of God's word, the law and the prophets, which is the Old Testament, and his own life testified to exactly what, what happened. That last phrase, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? In other words, isn't this the way that it should have happened? And then in verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, wouldn't you have liked to be a fly on that wall? I mean, these two privileged disciples received an unparalleled course in Old Testament Christology. He, he, he pointed out the passages that spoke of Messiah's suffering. And undoubtedly, he talked about Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and others. What an exposition of the scriptures this must have been. It's no wonder that later on they commented that their hearts burned within them as Jesus explained the scriptures to them. And that's the way preaching is supposed to be done. I mean, uh, there's a great book, I forget who wrote it, but it was, it's called Preaching as Jesus Taught, Teaching as Jesus Taught. And this was his method, to take the word of God and explain it. It's called expository teaching, explaining the meaning of what God has revealed. And this is essential. But Paul tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And that's why the Bible is so central here to Plum Creek Chapel. It was foundational in our beginning, in our birth. It's foundational for 18 years under Pastor John and, 
and, and, and as long as I'm blessed to be a part of the church, it's going to be foundational under my ministry. We prioritize the Bible. That's not true in many churches today, sadly. Uh, but it's got to be true because it's only by hearing the Word of God that faith to be saved can occur, because you've got to hear the gospel to be saved, and faith to grow up in spiritual maturity can occur. Well, we finally kind of get to that moment, the incredible revelation. So they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further, but they constrained him and said, Abide with us, for it's toward evening and the day is spent. And so he went in to stay with them. Now, of course they did, right? I mean, here you're having this dialogue with a stranger. Clearly this stranger has some very pointed questions and some pointed comments. You still don't know who he is, but you're thinking, Wow, I'm, in, I'm enjoying this conversation. It's an intriguing conversation. So, of course, they're going to invite him to stay. Notice Jesus didn't force himself on these disciples. He didn't force them to believe any more than he does today. See, nobody is forced to believe. It's our free choice. Just like it was our free choice to sin. And then Jesus paid the sin debt of the whole world and offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. But you have to receive it. He doesn't force it on you. He had, Jesus had whetted the spiritual appetites of these two men, but then he left it up to them. And they, responding to the revelation that he had given them, wanted to know more. And that's the way it works to this day. To this day. Someone asked me recently, well, what about those who've never heard the gospel? If you've got to hear the gospel to be saved and they've never heard, what does that mean? Well, the Bible addresses that in Romans 1 and 2. If people will respond to the creator of the universe through his general revelation, creation, conscience, providence, things that are visible to all, then God will send special revelation to make sure they hear the gospel. See, no man is without excuse. If not hearing the gospel meant someone automatically went to heaven somehow, then the worst thing we could ever do is spread the gospel. Because every time someone hears the gospel, now they're accountable. What we want to do, if, if not hearing the gospel meant an automatic pass into heaven, is keep it a secret, right? But the Bible is very clear and addresses this plainly in Romans 1, that no one is without excuse. The, the very creation itself testifies that there's a God, and if you respond to that, God will make sure you hear the gospel. And that's what these disciples did. They wanted to hear more. So now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And here it is, the climactic moment. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. This recognition of Jesus for who he was is, is the climax of the story. They now knew that the man that they had hoped was the Messiah had indeed been the Messiah and risen from the dead. He alone has the authority to forgive sin and to give new life. Hearing the Word of God, they believed the Word of God. And hearing the Word of God from the living incarnate Word of God, no less, they believed the Word of God. And they, sat, they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked, while He talked with us on the road and while He opened the Scriptures to us? I think Luke recorded this conversation to stress the supernatural power and convicting effect of the scriptures on people. We need to remember that the Bible is what God uses to solve all of life's mysteries. Every person that has come to faith in Jesus Christ did so because they heard the gospel. They may not have had a you know, Schofield reference Bible opened on their lap, 
but they heard the word of God, just as these disciples did. Um, John Wesley uh, also testified that he felt his heart, quote, strangely warmed at his conversion when he heard the scriptures expounded. Uh, I think people respond differently in faith. Faith just means to believe confidently in what God has promised and said, to believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins and is the only hope of eternal life. You're placing your faith solely in Jesus for salvation. For me, that occurred when I was six years old as a young man. And I, I can't say that I had a, 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 my heart burned in that moment, but I can definitely remember the feeling of conviction because I had heard the gospel growing up in church even as a young child. And I remember very vividly that night on a Sunday night hearing the pastor and the Spirit of God used that message. I don't remember what he said, but I definitely remember the Spirit of God convicting me that if I were to die in that moment, I would spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. That's how serious my sin was. And that Jesus Christ had died to pay that penalty so that I didn't have to go there. So that night when my dad came to tuck me in bed, I said... Um, I, I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved. I said something to the effect that the Spirit of God was working on me. And I didn't even know that's what it was in that moment. But he was. And then my dad reiterated the simple gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And in that moment, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how did these disciples respond? The last act here is the instinctive response. The Bible tells us, Luke tells us, they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed. The normal natural response to good news is to tell someone. We talked about this Wednesday night at our, at our midweek Bible study this week about how there's no other good news that I can think of that when you hear it or when it happens, you don't want to share it. I mean, you win the lottery, you want to share it, right? You get cured from cancer, you want to share it. Something exciting, you get a new job, you get a raise, whatever it is. You, new baby is born, you want to share it. But for some reason, the devil, after 2,000 years, has convinced us that the good news is something that we're to be intimidated and nervous about, and we're afraid to share it, right? It's good news that you don't have to pay your own penalty for sin. The debt has been paid. The wrath of God has been satisfied. And all you have to do is receive it. How do you receive it? By faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. So they rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and told them the good news. They told them about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. You see the frequent reference in this passage to the breaking of bread? Um, Maybe we should have a meal every week. I don't know. That would be, I'd vote for that. Um, of course, I'm not the one that has to cook it, so <laughs> all the ladies are looking at me with, like, be quiet. Um, the gospel message, though, is most effectively proclaimed in the normal course of everyday life. I think that's why the mention of breaking of bread. It wasn't something that they had to conjure up the strength for, to plan for, to think about, to be intentional about. They just did it. And in a normal course of everyday life, you break bread and you eat. In fact, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the first word there, go into all the world, even though in English, in the English translation, we think of it as a command. 
In Greek, it's actually a participle, poriumai, and it's literally as you go or going. The idea here is that in the normal course of life, everywhere you go, talk about Jesus. Share the good news. That's the instinctive response. And by the way, I encourage you today as you leave to pick up some gospel tracts from one of the tables uh, around here and hand them out this week. Uh, give them out to your you know, <laughs> clerks at the store or the uh, fast food you know, restaurant drive throughs or, you know, we give them out at hotels. Um, you can even give them to a police officer when he pulls you over for a ticket. Maybe he'll get saved and change his mind and show mercy. I don't know. Um, so there it was, the inquisitive disciples, the incognito visitor, the inconceivable misunderstanding, then the powerful explanation from Jesus, the credible revelation, it is I, and the instinctive response. What a story. I wonder if this story has become a reality in your life. And I know we've got visitors here. I don't want to presume anything. Uh, just know that if you're not certain you're going to spend eternity in heaven, don't leave today without settling that issue. And it's not something that you have to walk an aisle or you have to sign some kind of card or you have to go through some kind of class. It's a simple matter of childlike faith. And you can do that wherever you're sitting. You can just, in, in the simpleness of your heart, say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I, I need a Savior. And I know that your Son, Jesus, paid my price to save me from sin, and I'm trusting Him today to forgive my sin and give me eternal life. So here's the takeaway. First of all, going back to my opening story, don't talk about Jesus like He's not in the room, okay? He's real. He's alive. He's with us. He's right here. Uh, he promised He would be with us. Um, and he's, he's available. Embrace him. Believe in him. And then spread the good news about him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for just this riveting story that happens right on the heels of the greatest event of all of human history, the resurrection. Lord, I pray that as we contemplate the details of this story, it would just really convict us in so many different ways. First of all, that we know you, but also convict us that you're with us and that we can, be, we can take comfort in that. Lord, help us to be men and women of God, young people uh, who are part of the family of God who talk about you uh, like you're right here with us, not like it's some type of intellectual academic pursuit, but like the true relationship that it is. Lord, we, uh, we pray if there's one within the sound of my voice, whether watching the video or in this room today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them in simple faith. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.